0: As we turn to John chapter 4, and uh, I said we looked last week at the story of Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria, and so today we kind of finish that up and see what happens at the end of that. The one thing we know from scripture is that, and, and from our experience even, is that God is always drawing to people to himself, and we, we know from reading the end of the book that it's people from every tongue, and tribe, and nation, and language, and people. Uh, The the gospel knows no boundaries, knows no cultural boundaries, no race boundaries, no gender boundaries. It knows no boundaries. It goes into all the world, and and God's at work everywhere, drawing people to himself. And so when we see that, we, we come to this passage this morning, where we wonder maybe what is our role in that mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the world. And so we see that. Uh, like the woman at Samaria, that when the gospel comes upon us, it should overflow from us into the lives of others. So we'll look at that this morning. Like I said, last week we we read about this woman and she she met Jesus and was amazed by and, and even drawn to this man who told her everything she'd ever done. Her life was transformed by his love and mercy and grace. He knew everything that she had ever done, but yet he accepted her fully. No one had ever maybe accepted her fully. She came to the well in the middle of the day because of shame and condemnation. The community would point out her sin and make her feel guilty, we assume. She was avoiding people. And yet Jesus is there, offering her acceptance and love and grace and hope in the midst of a life that we, just from the nature of the story, we assume has been disappointed to her. She's had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. There's just... We read and feel the weight of the brokenness uh, in her life story. Our sermon passage this morning starts where we ended last week. Like I said, this woman has found acceptance with Christ. And now she's going into town to tell all these people that she's been trying to avoid. She's going into town to tell everyone that she has met this man. Who, at this point, she believes to be the Messiah. Uh, The the Christ and so with that in mind, let me read for us from John chapter 4 I'm going to read starting in verse 27 down through uh, verse 45 in John chapter 4 Says just then his disciples came back They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people come See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two, more, two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you speak to us even now, even as we've read this, would you, would you start using your word to open up our lives and our hearts, to follow you, to love you, to love our neighbors, and to, to live and do all things for your glory. May joy well up within us like that spring of living water that we read about last week. And overflow into the lives of those around us. Thank you for being our God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. so when we think about the the story of scripture and the story of the gospel. And even in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the fact that God's at work in the world and has always been at work in the world. One of the things that, that may surprise us as we read the Bible and we think about the story. Is that God often uses the people that we least expect to accommodate, to accomplish his work in this world. And so throughout the Bible we see him use you know, various sorts of people. We think about Abraham who believed God and, and, and was credited with righteousness. But also at the same time he, he lied about his wife multiple times. He put her in precarious situations to save himself. Gee, Abraham so, so often along his story was just a selfish guy. Who lied to protect his own interest and his own life at times. And we say can God really use someone like that? We think about Moses, who had this physical debilitation of sorts that stuttered and and didn't want to be the mouthpiece of God. And God said, "You're going to go and speak for me." And he says, "I can't, I can't talk, I can't talk, I can't do this." And he says, "I'll graciously send Aaron with you, but you're doing this. I've called you out." And so God uses people, and we wonder about them. We think about Rahab, who was, you know, likely a prostitute, whom God had. God used her to protect two spies and then welcomed her into the family of Abraham, she eventually becomes a great, 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 you get the idea, grandmother of Jesus. She's in the lineage. When we go and read in Matthew, and we're amazed, what is she doing there? Because God's gracious and merciful, and God uses people that we don't often expect. David, we're told at the very beginning when we first meet him, is a man after God's own heart. Became the king of Israel. And you go, well, surely he can be used. But he's also an adulterer and a murderer. And and things just get crazy in the midst of this story. And we go, wait, is God actually using this guy? And we look and we go, yes. (laughs) Even him. You think about Jonah. A prophet on the run from the call of God. You think about Zacchaeus, a tax collector. Basically hated by everyone. And yet he finds hope in Jesus. Becomes a giver rather than a taker. Think about the centurion at the cross, a Roman soldier who helped crucify Jesus. And and as he watched Jesus die, he was convinced, this man must be the son of God. And his confession, because it's recorded in scripture, has now been proclaimed throughout the ages. That this man, Jesus, must be the son of God. Of course, we've talked about the woman at the well last week at length, a morally unacceptable woman to, to those in her community who finds acceptance from Christ, like we said, the one who knows all of her shortcomings, all of her failures. He knows everything she's ever done. How scary is that? And yet he loves her unconditionally. Before we get back to her story, though, let's think about maybe the the one, the most famous convert to Christianity in the scripture is the Apostle Paul, who is out murdering Christians. He's on his way to, uh, you know, on the road to Damascus, on his way to to go and upend the work of, of the church and the Christians there, been known for, for murdering and imprisoning Christians along the way. And, and while he's out there seeking to do this evil, God comes upon him, literally blinds him, but while blinding him opens up his eyes to the reality of who He is, a sinner, who Christ is the, the Messiah. And he's transformed into an apostle of grace. You know, we don't know what God had been doing in the life of the Samaritan woman leading up to her conversation with, with Jesus. We don't know what was in her background. What, maybe God had already been at work. Maybe there had been circumstances going on that were preparing her. We assume that's probably the case. And yet Jesus enters in and, you know, things start happening there. But we do know with Paul. Paul, were, With Paul, there were no signs that he was on the verge of trusting in Christ. Nothing in his life said, this guy's about to deny what he's been doing and go start preaching about Jesus. But yet God, in this sudden and traumatic way, opens his eyes to see himself and to see for who he is and see Jesus for who he really is. And Jesus, a Savior who redeems sinners, even the worst of sinners. Here's what John Piper says about Paul. He says, Paul was not ripe for the picking, as we like to say. He was way beyond picking. He was hard and dry and shriveled up. What happened to Paul was sudden and utterly unexpected. And that means the same can happen for others. We should keep praying and keep speaking the truth in love. As I said last week, there's no one beyond the need of God's grace. There's also no one beyond the reach of God's grace. So we shouldn't view anyone as too immoral, too hard to the gospel, or unsavable in any way. The word of God is living and active, and God is drawing people to himself for his glory all the time. All right, let's look particularly at verses 31 through 38 here in the the heart of this text. You know, Jesus says that the the disciples have been out in town. They come back with food and they say, you know, Rabbi, eat. And he says, um, you know, he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Jesus, once again, is using something common, food, drink. Last week he talked about the water of the well being a fountain of living life. correlates the, the physical water there to the spiritual fountain of truth and grace that he brings. And here he uses something common again, this food, to teach a spiritual lesson. In this case, he's teaching the disciples that what keeps him going, because remember, food is what fuels us, right? Food and water and drink. But he says what keeps him going is... Is not knowing, you know, it's not knowing where his next meal is coming from, but it's knowing that he is busy doing the work that he came to do, that he was sent to earth to accomplish, and that is the gathering of the harvest that's prepared for him. Here's what John Calvin says about this part of this passage. He says, uh, he says, by his example, Jesus shows us. Right, let me start over. By it says, by his example, Jesus shows us. That the kingdom of God should have priority over all bodily comforts. To be about the work that God gives us. And that work is, he says, you know, that the priority should be the kingdom of God over all bodily comforts. To be about the work of God, which is to advance God's kingdom, to restore lost souls to life, to spread the light of the gospel, and to bring salvation to the world. That's what Jesus has come into the world to do. And it's what he continues to do through the work of the Spirit through the church to advance God's kingdom, to restore lost souls to life, to re- to spread the light of the gospel and to bring salvation to the world. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't eat or sleep or rest. Jesus did all those things. But it does mean that whether we eat or sleep or whatever we do, or eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. We try not to waste our time, we try to waste our energy, we try to waste our rest. We do these things all we should do all these things to the ends that God would be glorified, which means loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. And then Jesus, of course, turns to a farming metaphor here. He talks about reaping and harvest. He says, the fields are white to harvest. Now, what does that mean? I'm not a farmer. I've never farmed any wheat in my life. So this is all I'm taking experts' words for this. They say that when wheat is ready to harvest the tips of the wheat stalks would turn white. And so the farmers could walk out and look over their field and know whether it's harvest season or not. And so Jesus is saying, in a spiritual sense, look out. So he takes this common metaphor again, the farming, just says he has the food and the water. And he says, this is something we all know, he said, the fields are white for harvest, spiritually speaking. so a farmer could watch his field, know that this time has arrived. One of the commentaries I this week said that the, the people of Samaria commonly wore white robes with white head coverings. So remember, this lady, the woman at the well, has gone into town and she's telling people, go up to the well and meet this man who's told me everything that I've ever done. Come, let's go. Come meet this guy. So she's wanting people to meet the one who set her free from all her shame and guilt and condemnation. The, the one who has loved her unconditionally. And so as they're going up the hill, it's possible, the commentator says, it's possible that Jesus is sitting there with his disciples and he says, look, the fields are white for harvest. And as they turn, he points down the road and as he looks down the road, they see all these white head coverings and white robes starting to come up the, up the street towards where they are. And Jesus is saying, look, the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. Go and reap. Others have sown. The prophets, the, the teachers of Israel, the you know, Abraham and Moses, all those things we've talked about. This woman at the well has gone and she's sowed the truth out. She said, Come and meet this guy. There's an invitation there of sowing the gospel. But now he said to the disciples, here's your job. Go and help these people understand. Help them trust in me. Help them believe the gospel. Help them, help them, bring them into the kingdom. Invite them into what's going on in the work I'm doing. Now, of course, at this point, the disciples are just starting to understand all this stuff. We, on the other hand, live on the far side of the cross and are able to look back and we can actually tell people the full story. We can say, look what Jesus has done. I've met someone who's told me everything that I've ever done and he's accepted me fully. And not only that, he laid down his life and died and took the condemnation that I deserve." I'm free and you can be free. I've been reconciled to God and you can be reconciled to God. I'm now starting to reconcile my enemies. You can come and be reconciled to your enemies. All of these things. And so we're, we're reaping a harvest. Reaping a harvest. Helping people understand the work of Christ. The gospel transforms our lives in such a way that to truly understand the beauty and truth of this gospel is to long for the rest of the world to also know this truth, to experience this freedom, to live in this joy. In your bulletin there at the very beginning, there's a quote from Leslie Newbigin, who is a, a, um, a missiologist, an expert in, in world missions and such. And um, And here's what he says, talking about mission work and missions and Proclaiming the good news of the gospel. He says, Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed, it must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? Now he's talking about the resurrection there. Jesus has died, he's been resurrected. Remember the the women who came to the tomb, they ran to tell the disciples, he's alive, he's not there, he's alive, he's risen. Remember John and Peter run to the tomb and then they go and tell everyone. It's true, he's alive. So he's saying this this news that Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. He says, who could be silent about such a fact? And he says, the mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is like the fallout from a vast explosion. A radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving. Now, I grew up, up in LaGrange, just over the mountain. But, um, remember, I grew up in the 80s in the midst of the Cold War. And... And so I remember the teacher uh, in science class talking about nuclear bombs. And, of course, Fort Benning was going to get bombed as soon as it happened. And so she would draw circles. And we were in the, the danger area. If this happens, you're dead. That was basically the lesson. Draw the circle. You live in this circle. Sorry. And so this fear. We're like, go win the Cold War. <laughs> you know, because we don't want to die. We don't want to. They're going to bomb Fort Benning, and we're all going to die. Okay, We get that, right? We as a 12-year-old, I felt that fear, that, oh, uh. But imagine an explosion of joy like that that goes out from the epicenter of the resurrection and the death and life and beauty of Jesus Christ and the work that the Spirit's doing now. And it just overflows and it ripples, not just locally, not just for 40 or 100 miles, but around the globe forever. We still feel the ripples Of the resurrection, even today. Think about this. It happened 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world, and yet we sit here today worshiping this risen Savior. Why? Because God's at work through His Spirit and through His people, the church, to make His name known, to make His name famous, to make this gospel known. So, have you ever thought about the gospel like that? An explosion of joy. Look, if we don't see joy as the heart of the experienced gospel, like if we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then there's no joy that comes with that, we've got to wonder, do I really understand the truth of the gospel? Because the chances are, if we don't have that joy, then we don't truly understand our own, the value of our own salvation, which means that we likely don't have a grasp on the reality of the depths of our sinfulness. Let me give you some verses to help you out here. Mark 7, 21 through 23 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? Titus 3.3, talking about Christians in their state before Christ, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Ephesians 2.1-3, in the same sense, writing about what we were before, says, And you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 3, and maybe the more sobering passages in all the scripture says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What's he saying? Well, in a few verses later, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's he doing there? He's telling us what that all looks like. That's all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Thank God that he saves us and gives us new life. (laughs) That that, for those of us who trust in Christ, is the old life. Now, we still have some traces of that and sometimes some Weights of that and sometimes some seasons of that. But God gives us hope. Thank God for Jesus who died that we might be set free from all of those things. It sets us free from our slavery to sin. Listen to what Titus 3, 4 through 7 says. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's good news. That's news that makes us sing. Think about the old hymns. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. What does this truth do? How does this joy come out? Partly in song. In rejoicing. In celebration. In a few minutes, we're going to sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's us. That's how the gospel works deep within us, by grace, through faith, not of ourselves so that no one can boast. It's his mercy and his grace, his power at work within us. Even while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus to die for our sins. We can't get over that. That's not a truth that we mature beyond. We need to live all of our days, every moment of our day, in light of the fact that we have been saved from certain death. For the wages of sin is death. We need to never get over that. We go, but there's good news. That's the bad news, Mitch. There's good news. Yes, and we live in the freedom and joy of the good news. But what makes the good news good is that the bad news was so bad. The woman at the well in Samaria... Jesus didn't have to go deep to remind her of the bad news. She wore it on her being. He could probably see it in her face. He saw it in the way that she carried her water bottle to the well in the middle of the heat of the day because of the shame and the guilt that she was experiencing, not just from herself, but from those around her. But when Jesus sets her free, what does it do? It transforms her life. She puts her water bottle down and runs into town. All these people who have shamed her, And reminded her of her sin and her failures and her relationships. And just the tragedy that's been left in a stream behind her. They've been reminding her of this probably for decades. But now she runs into town in the center of town square. Just doing something that she never did. She avoided people. But now she's there in the midst of town saying, come and meet someone who set me free. He's told me everything I've ever done and yet he loves me. That's the beauty of the gospel. And we'll only understand that when we understand that we really, truly are sinners. We're not the the cream of the crop and Jesus shows up and goes, well, y'all are doing pretty good, I'll take you. None of us are in that category. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he comes and he gives us that. He gives us abundant life. That makes this good news worth singing about. When we truly understand the reality of our sins and what the gospel saves us from, we experience joy that we can't keep through ourselves. That's the very nature of joy, right? When a baby is born, what do we do? We tell everyone. When our team wins the national championship, we go and spend money At sports shops to wear that, you know, we're the national champions. I mean, Brad's got, what, 24 of those shirts. (laughs) Some years they didn't even win it. They just buy the shirts and wear them anyway. You got, you know, you get engaged. You go on vacation. Facebook exists just to share the, well, also vile and hatred and anger. But I think joy. (laughs) Hopefully that's what most of us are using it for, right? To share our joy with those around us. Now, when people are filled with joy, they want to share that joy. But some would say, particularly in our culture, well, religion is a personal matter. You should keep that to yourselves. And so many in our culture make that argument. That's because, I think, people don't want to be confronted with something that might be offensive to them. But the reality is, if we're going to help people understand there's a Savior, there's going to have to be some offense on the front end to say, you need a Savior. There's sin in your life. There's fallenness in your life. There's need in your life. We're Americans. We're self-sufficient. We do it ourselves right now. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mark Dever, Baptist pastor up in, in Washington, D.C., says, One part of clarity sometimes missed by earnest evangelists, those who would go out and share the good news, he says, is the willingness to offend He says, clarity with the claims of Christ certainly will include the translation of the gospel into words that our hearer understands. We want to speak clearly and and, and into the life and culture of the person we're talking to, of course. He says, but it doesn't necessarily mean translating it into words that our hearer will like. Too often, advocates of relevant evangelism verge over into being advocates of irrelevant non-evangelism. It's offensive, so we're just not going to do it. That's what he's getting at there. He says, a gospel which in no way offends the sinner has not been understood. A gospel which in no way offends the sinner, confronts their sin and who they are and calls them out of that, has not been understood. This was also almost certainly true for all of us who are Christians, although... That offense may have been brief as it seemingly was for the woman at the well. Jesus didn't leave her to linger in, her, in the weight of her guilt. She was doing that well by herself, it seems. But for someone to repent of their sins, we must understand that we are wrong in how we are living compared to the commands of God. That's part of our evangelism. Is to say there's sin that needs to be repented of. It's true for me, it's true for everyone, all of us. It's almost certainly to be understood initially as offensive. To be told that your life is offensive. Yeah, and so people tell us to be quiet. Don't talk about that stuff. It's offensive. When we go, yes, but it's also life-giving. It's the best kind of offensive. Because it takes us down to who we really are. opens our eyes to see who we are. And lifts up Jesus and says, he's all you need and he wants you. And he takes you. Just as you are. To summarize that, we would say the gospel is personal, but it's not private. It's not intended to be private. Here's what John Piper says about missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Well, which? Why are we been talking about missions all the time? Listen. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It's a temporary necessity. It's how God gets the gospel out. But worship abides forever. He says, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. Now, listen to this. This is the key sentence. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. So, we must cherish the gospel. And then go into all the world proclaiming the beauty of the, the wonder of the beauty of this great salvation. Listen to Romans 10. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We're to be sending. I'm sending you. Maybe next door, maybe around the world. He says, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news may our feet be beautiful because we've brought good news God is always drawing people to himself people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language even right here at our own community so my hope and prayer is that he would give us boldness and, and not just boldness but overflowing joy that we might go into our community and tell people about this man who knows everything that we've ever done and yet still loves us, loves us so much that he laid down his life as a ransom to set us free from sin and hell and death and the grave. For he's overcome those things and he's left us with joy. Joy because we're loved. Let me pray for us and we'll go to the table of feast. Father, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Would you help us to believe it? And not just believe it in a general sense, but to believe it in regards to our own selves, our own souls, our own bodies, our own lives, our own hearts, our own relationships, our own futures, and even covering the sins of our past and giving us hope for the future and even into eternity. God, would you help us to love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Help us to see ourselves for who we really are. Sinners in need of a savior. But more so than that, help us see Jesus for who he really is. The savior that we as sinners need. And he has come and has lived perfectly. And laid down his life. That we might know the truth. Might receive the truth. Might call on him for salvation and be saved. Would you help us to tell all the world that there's hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ, our savior.